So then when I run for office, everyone can say, well, you know, Brandon was always about bringing people together. He's like Van Jones and Don King mixing <laughs> <one>. <laughs> Welcome all to another episode of Young, Black, and Political. With this one, we are finally out of the muck of the presidential campaign in the Senate and congressional races. We have our winners. Um, we'll start with the presidential circuit. Uh, Joe Biden right now, as it stands, 306 electoral votes, the same amount that Donald Trump won in 2016. And how Joe Biden won those votes is what really has people uh, locked in. We're talking about big wins in Michigan, Wisconsin, the Rust Belt delivering, uh, but also some surprising states. Georgia flipping blue, if all indications are correct. So uh, we got our usual roundtable here to break it all down. And uh, I'll, I'll just kind of open the floor to everybody here, especially Chris and Stephanie, who have been working tirelessly <laughs> in their respective races and fields. Uh, I'm sure y'all are a little bit, I guess the word would be, relieved that it's, that, that it's, uh, it's ended, that election season is over? That's a word choice. Um, <laughs> I would look. just like to circle back to, have we cut out what it do from our greeting, from our intro? I would, I would just wanted to circle back. Yes. Right? No, <laughs> I, I think we could. I've been chastised for it so often <laughs> that I figured I'd switch it up a little bit. But, you know, what it do? What it do to all our listeners? In honor of Jeezy and Gucci, what it do? What it do? <laughs> I'll tell you what I it think does. We are really, yes, go ahead. I, I, think, I, think it, I think it do blue, Stephanie. I think... What black voters did was restore uh, the blue wall in Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and look out Georgia uh, uh, coming through um, for Democrats uh, uh, this election. That's that's a decade in the making. Um, and I think there's more to come in the next couple of weeks in this uh, Senate race, which we'll get to in a second. But I mean, look, the, 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 the president-elect now, vice president-elect, went out. Um, and built a campaign that was about reaching voters. Um, and they spoke people's issues and they knew this was, uh, you know, as our friend pointed, a survival uh, election and engaged folks to make sure they came out and voted. And they did, they voted their interests. Um, and, and frankly, uh, among the only group of, of Americans in terms of the demographic that really voted their interests. Um, and so and it's a victory for Democrats. It was, a good, it was a good night, if you can call that stretch of days a night. Quite a night. If that's a, yeah, if you could put a whole bunch of days into one night, it was quite a night. I, I saw a great meme. It was uh, New York from Flavor of Love laying on the bed with her hand over her head. And it's like, Joe Biden winning the presidency for the sixth time this week. <laughs> <laughs> and continues to win because the Trump campaign wants to pay for recounts and, and, we, and we allow them to spend those surprise. It's like, yo, right. you, don't, you don't get it? <laughs> How many times we got to teach you this lesson? The math is mathing. You know, two plus two equals four every day of the week, and no matter what party that you are a part of. And so I am glad that the Trump campaign has finally learned to count and has finally learned some math. 
um, because you need to get to 270 and Mr. Vice President-elect Joe Biden is in the 300s. So there and forth, that would make him the winner, whether or not President Trump um, wants to concede or continue his Twitter rants. But it is a good week, month, day, and year to be a Black woman who has once again put democracy on her back and has delivered the United States from peril. You all are welcome. Um, and without the notable, honorable, and amazing work of the one and only Stacey Yvonne Abrams for delivering us Georgia. Um, I truly and sincerely believe that she made the case and told the Biden campaign early before he was even Democratic candidate Biden, Georgia is going to be important. We are a state that you need and you need to win. This is where and this is why. And I think that she is the example and the epitome of having lemons, but making lemonade. Her race was stolen from her because of voter fraud and deception. And she still, she didn't go hide in her closet. She didn't, you know, just take her toys and go home. She put the state on her back and delivered this country the win that it needed. And I just feel like that is just a lesson, apolitical, that that is what Black women do. That is what we all need to do. Take our lemons, make lemonade. And the further that we push for democracy and decency and fairness, the more we're going to get it. And Stacey Abrams is just a shining example. And I just live and breathe for her. So it has been a good six election nights. I yes, feel like it's like seven crazy nights with Adam Sandler, but just with the election. <laughs> yeah, Georgia was, was quite a story. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of political analysts and political journalists are eating crow because I remember Barack Obama going to Georgia the day before election day. He had two chains out there. And I thought to myself, why are you focusing on Georgia? Are you that confident that you're running up the score? Or do you feel like Georgia's going to be pivotal? Um, me personally, I thought Georgia was out of, it just wasn't going to happen. I've kind of, I put Georgia and Texas into that territory of like, eh, it's progress, but it's not going to flip this election. But boy, were we wrong about that. I mean, Georgia has flipped. And really, it's a true testament to what, what you said, Black voters, Black women like Stacey Abrams, but also organizers on the ground who have been really working to make this flip over time. A flip like that doesn't happen overnight, right? It takes years and years of on the ground organizing work. And let's be honest here, it takes a lot of organizing work led by black people engaging with people in the state who are not black, engaging with white voters in the state, Latino voters in the state. Oftentimes black voters know white voters better than white voters do. So I, I think all of that is a testament to the power of the black electorate in the Democratic Party. It was already clear, it should have already been clear, that that's your, that, that's your base, right? But Georgia shows you, oh, you owe the world to black people, and your agenda needs to reflect that going forward. Georgia was amazing to see, but it also opens possibilities for other states in the future, you see what Jamie Harrison did in South Carolina. The goal in South Carolina, 
if we're being honest, I don't think many thought he was going to win South Carolina, right? The goal was to break past or at 45 and to make some progress in organizing a movement in that state. And if you get more Jamie Harrisons, over time, you have the organizing groundwork on the ground to do that, that happens. In Texas, okay, Texas did not flip this year, right? In 2024, who is to say, right? If you keep the momentum going and keep that same energy, right? It's like if you lose the NBA championship, right? You made it to the finals still. You got to keep working to get back. Got to keep working to get back. So I was very encouraged uh, to see that. Um, and I'm excited. I know people that have been working in Georgia on the ground uh, who were a big part of that effort. And um, I'm happy for them to see that, that pay off. And now Georgia is at the center of the political universe right now with those two Senate runoffs that are going to dictate control of the Senate. Really? Brandon, there's, there's, a, there's a couple things to, under, to underline, highlight, um, put in both fine. Uh, uh, on what you say when it comes to Georgia, when it comes to South Carolina, frankly, when it comes when it comes to, to North Carolina and Florida as well, um, there is an emerging South. There um, has been over the last few cycles sustained increasing um, engagement. We're now seeing increasing turnout, um, and this is no ordinary election for sure. But but we're winning Georgia, given uh, what the president turned on in that state is remarkable. It is, a, it is a landslide in terms of increased turnout. Um, the same thing is true, and I'm talking about in communities of color, and, and that is, is similar for Black voters in, in Texas. So I think we have to just, as a party, continue to remind ourselves that we go and run up the score and move the bill and play everywhere in every cycle, and we won't always get what we want, um, but we, folks have to be hearing from us, and they've got to they've know um, what our agenda is for them and have that and sustained engagement cycle to cycle to cycle to cycle. And we'll start to see some more of these victories. I do believe Stacey Abrams uh, will be the next governor uh, of Georgia. And I do believe that the, the state of Georgia is going to deliver uh, the United States Senate for Democrats. Chris, you and Brandon both said something. Um, Brandon, talking about years of organizing work. And Chris, you just said sustained engagement. We won this election at the top of the ticket. We won the presidential. But there are Congress people and mayors and state house and state senate and city council people who didn't win, who should have. Um, and once again, to bring up Stacey Abrams, we don't get to take our toys and go home. If you truly care about your communities, if you truly care about this country, what we get to do right now is continue fighting. No, there's not a candidate that we're fighting for. But if we still truly believe that there's work to be done, there's work to be done in off years. You can register people to vote in off years. You can you know, work on fundraising and community engagement activism in off years. So the sustained engagement is truly what's going to change the landscape of our country. Um, and so I just hope that everyone listening continues to stay involved politically and does not take their foot off the gas just because it's not an even numbered year where we have a big election or because you think that we have Biden in office now and we can all sleep peacefully. Like this is the time to keep your foot on the gas and, you know, make sure that you are staying engaged with your communities, especially in Georgia because of this runoff. Yeah, this runoff is going to be very interesting with Warnock and Kelly Loeffler um, Osof and 
Purdue. Um, it's going to be interesting. And I think one of the interesting things about the ballot and the way it went, went down, you saw people vote for Joe Biden, top of the ticket, but maybe not vote Democratic through the rest of the ticket, right? And vice versa. I wonder how that's going to play out in this runoff race. In a sense, it's a reset for, for these candidates. They have to make the case and make it even harder. And they don't have a lot of time to do it, you know? So uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch because in the, the scenario I see, I think that one of these Senate races is a lot more of a slam dunk than the other. I think that Warnock is going to beat Loeffler. I think Loeffler is kind of, I think her time, she's had a lot of things come up on her. And I think the, the writing's on the wall, right? Osoff at Purdue is a little more challenging, and that's going to be the one I'm really going to be paying attention to, because that's going to be key. Obviously, you know, and the reason why these are keys, we got to break this down for those who don't know. You're looking for control of the Senate. Either way, if you win both those Senate races, you don't have the majority, but you do have a split where the deciding vote would be the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. You already have a Democrat at the top of the ticket for the presidency and vice presidency. So that's where Kamala Harris comes into play. So that's the key. You're shooting for that split there, but you have to win both or else you, you don't have a shot. So it's going to be a tough race. Um, any, Brandon, any, I just yeah. I just wanted to say that I love hearing vice president of the United States. Kamala. I saw you get very hyped. I just, hype I when just you. love hearing people say it. You got vice very hyped. I'm looking forward to, to that for the next It is uh, interesting. We, we have a black woman VP. And you know, I've, been, I've been talking to political leaders around here in Chicago about it. And they, a lot of them women, black women, have just been just like emotional about it because it is a moment. Something that I don't think many expected to happen this soon either. You know, we saw Barack Obama win the presidency. But there's always this sense, and maybe Stephanie, you can speak to this, that it is when it comes to our movements, black men first. And then, oh, but black women wait a little bit and it will be your time, right? Here comes Kamala Harris, you know? And a lot of the sentiment that I'm hearing from a lot of black women in the political circle was like sooner than we expected, right? But to have her as VP right now is even more emotional because they're, they're, they're so used to being told you have to wait till 2024 or 2028 or 2032 for Kamala Harris, right? So that, I think that's pretty interesting, too, to, to have that black woman VP representation there, but historic representation from an HBCU, from, uh, from a, a part of a, a Divine Nine organization, the AKAs. You know, it's, it's, it's something to marvel at. It is. It is. And, you know, I, as a political nerd that I am, went back and watched Geraldine Ferraro debate um, <laughs> George H.W. Bush. And I do think, you know, just for women in general, I do think Geraldine Ferraro gets swept under the rug, but she was a phenomenal vice presidential candidate. She was smart. She was tough. She was savvy. And now to have Kamala Harris as, like you said, an African-American and South Asian woman now be able to continue to shatter that glass ceiling that, you know, Hillary Clinton cracked just a little bit more. You know, Sarah Palin, to give her her credit, too, she was a woman vice presidential candidate. She put a crack in that glass ceiling. And to see Kamala Harris, of all people, just shatter it, you know, it kind of brought me to tears after the Biden-Harris um, 
acceptance speech with all the fireworks and all that beautifulness. It was trending on Twitter. Um, a bunch of women were tweeting, there's glass on the floor. And it was just like this moment that like, we, we did it. The highest office in the country, like we're there. Now, are we in the highest seat? No, we're getting there. But as a woman, and especially as a woman of color, like we did this. Um, I don't know if you guys watched my Instagram live, but my dad had me in full on tears because as they emigrated from this to this country, um, he, in so many words, said, you know, I came into this country so you could be the next Kamala, right? Like, she did it. This is every immigrant's parent's dream. And, like, huge. this is, you know, it meant so much to him and to, you know, so many people who have sacrificed leaving their home country to come to America to achieve the American dream. And Kamala is the realization for, I think, so many across this melting pot of a country. Like, we did the right thing because now our child can be Kamala Harris and she is just a beacon of hope and intelligence and I am so excited for the next four years of this Biden-Harris um, administration. Will it be perfect? No. And I am waiting for the Twitter trolls to get back and say, I told y'all she don't even like black people. <laughs> but yeah. it is going to be a step in the right direction and i think that we all need to just be excited for what's next i was talking about this stephanie with somebody the other day you know to to kind of harris um vice president like terry's point that you were making i'm talking to the trolls right and i think i think you know hats off uh i'll get in trouble for saying this hats off to the k-hive for holding it down on social media and, and, and really operationalizing what it means to like have a dis an anti-disinformation misinformation ecosystem online that was combating the nonsense and the crap um i think that the same way that black americans and progressives felt defensive about president barack obama and for eight years defended uh, him and kept cool uh misinformation when it came to his virtual these other pieces my i'm 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 putting it on black men to make sure that we speak about this black woman this vice president in a way that respects the office the way that respects her the way that 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 sends a signal to the other black women who are running for office and in office um that, that we're not going to tolerate the misogyny uh in our own communities um or, or, and it's, or it's directed um at our women because they're they're both women and women of color so i think that is going to be an interesting just socially over the next couple of years to think about and to look at how we speak up and talk about um, talk about this vice president and, and beat back some of the nonsense that we know is for sure on the way and what is really a divided, uh, a divided government. Divided indeed. I want to get your all's take on what happens moving forward because while there's a lot to celebrate with this election, I think there are some things to to work on. Um, two things I thought of out the gate with Biden's win. The way he won wasn't close electoral vote-wise, popular vote-wise, but the election itself was historic in nature because both candidates, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, were able to expand their electorate. 
and were able to engage more voters. Both shattered records in that regard. Um, so it, this was not the, um, the rejection of Trumpism that I think Democrats wanted at all, because you actually had a more energized base. So I think one thing the Democratic Party is going to have to do going forward is figure out why is that? Why did people dig in instead of leaving or not voting? And why did more people sway over? How did Trump get more black men to vote for him in the last election and black women too? How did he get more Latinos? And there's a lot to break down too with the Latino vote. The Latino vote itself really doesn't exist. There's so many different segments to the Latino community and you know, Cuban Americans in one part of the country are not gonna vote the same way as Cuban Americans in another part of the country, like in Florida versus, versus Michigan. Two different, two different things entirely, right? They're not monolithic by any means and they're just such a diverse community the Trump campaign has been doing something right in engaging those communities. And I think the Democratic Party needs to find something there and learn because, yes, now's the time to celebrate, but Trump is probably going to run again in 2024, or Trumpism, at least, is still going to be around in 2024. It's not going away. You still have Mike Pence. He still has his imprint on the party and his base. And I bet you he still does rallies. I bet you he tries to still do a, what do I call it? A shadow government. You know, no, he's not elected. No, he's not president. But he's still going to be very active, engaged, and doing the same things he did as president. He's going to have Trump TV. He's going to do rallies. And we, there has to be active work from the Democratic Party to both expand their electorate and reach out to those people, but also uh, find ways to not alienate their current base either. It's a challenging thing. It's, it's a challenging thing. And there's a lot of work to do for Joe Biden too to unite this country. Brandon, let's get into a little bit of this because I have thoughts. Let's get and into it, Chris. Let's get into of it. it. Some of the takes. Well, I don't know so much that we have different thoughts so much as that I think that there's some there's some some deeper digging to be done um, as we as we look back at 22 and then what that what we think that might tell us about rather look back at 20 and, and see what, what 22 and 24 looks like and there are, there are a couple of things that I am making an active choice to to stop people from saying at least call out every time I hear it um, and so I'm going to talk first about black men who eight out of ten voted for Democrats in this election. Uh, Cornel Budger said it best. It is a lazy, overblown, myopic narrative to suggest that black voter, black men, has some crazy surge to Trump, um, and that that is a problem uh, because Democrats lost them. It's a, it's a problem anytime we lose any segment of our of our base, right? But there are there is no other group, with the exception of black women who are doing eight out of 10 or better for any political party. And let's not forget, because we just talked about groups not being monolithic, there are black Republicans. Black Trumpsters is, is a question that I would like to dig into, but there are black Republicans. And so I think that it is, it is, it is lazy 
and frankly, it's disrespectful to to black men and to black people when we when we pretend like there aren't some of us who vote Republican. And we can talk about what that what that means all day long. But but I, but I think to say to Democrats, we well, have to get everyone. You don't get all. You don't get eight point five of them. You don't get nine out of ten of them. No, you get you're getting eight out of ten of an entire group. That's pretty significant. And then we went engaged engaged people, and and expanded the electorate among that group. And that's the group that gave us Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, during a surge on the right. So I think that we have to stop being lazy and talking about this demographic and talk about how do we appeal to that small segment of black men. It is a small segment of black men who drift Republican, maybe they have more moderate views, or who, who have drifted into this Trump lane for whatever reason. That's, I think that's what we said to the conversation. So that's, that's the first part. I think that the well, let, let me let me have yeah. let me have real quick. I agree with you that we shouldn't overblow things to act like there's this mass defection of black men that are not voting Democrat. However, the data is striking in terms of the loss of black male support for Democrats since 2008. Like, and and as far as Republicans go, yes, there are black Republicans. But they don't usually do this well with black people or black men. Donald Trump has, has made, made, this is a record. This man shifted his electorate in a big way that no Republican really has before. That can't be ignored, I don't think. No, it's not enough for it to be, uh, I guess you could say, consequential to the election result this year, right? But I'm just saying, if you don't pay attention to it before it becomes a problem, because here in Chicago, I hear a lot of black men who were completely unintended this political process, felt like Kamala Harris was anti-black man, and they chose an anti-black man candidate as the VP. Of course, misinformation is part of that, but I do think there has to be some outreach there. And the one thing I heard from one person in particular, he speaks, he's a radio guy here in Chicago, um, was that he felt like Democrats aren't reaching out to black men. Like that everything the Democrats do is geared towards black women and black men feel like they're kind of left out of the process. Whereas the Republicans, from his, from his vantage point, were doing more outreach, including the Trump campaign. So I, I think that has to be paid attention to. I agree, you can't act like it's a, it made a difference or a big dent in this election. I'm just saying, we need to track that going forward because seeing that black support grow for Republicans over time in historic margins is something that could be a problem going forward if you're not careful. Well, I, we're not disagreeing that we have to track the issue. We, there's a, anytime you see slippage among what you would, would, would expect to be base voters, we have to be paying attention to it. And I think you saw the Democratic Party and, and the Biden campaign in particular be very, um, intentional and loud about chasing um, and, and persuading and engaging black men in this election. I think you'll see that organizing um, continue in, in many forms. Um, you know that the, the um, Alpha PAC launched a PAC this, this year that it's very much about engaging black men in communities around, around, around political issues. So I don't, I don't disagree that the engagement has to continue and that we have to go fight on that, that turf. Um, but we have to be careful about how we talk about it, or to talk about it in that way, because so often we talk about it as though there's this, you know, 
huge crazy problem among among uh, black and voters who like you know not even doesn't talk about turnout who when they do vote vote for public that's just not true it's just not real um, and so we have to have a conversation about where we're having where we're what territory and ground we're fighting on and then what are we going to deliver and I think you know it, it, it's almost looking at 2008 and then 2012 and then 2016 and 2020, I mean, you got like apples and oranges and rocks and pears and peaches in there, right? Like these elections are so very different. And I've, I've tried to warn people that while I think we can look at historical data um, and we should, and that it can, it can inform some of what's happening right now, what we can expect to happen. We are not in ordinary times. We just had the largest election in American history in terms of participation. And the groups that, that that turn out the least are the groups that push the election over the top to win despite a surge among folks who who supported a president who's peddled conspiracy theories and let a pandemic go crazy and that's an, I mean, that's an objective point that that's pretty extraordinary so look at all of that in context let's look at the historical data let's look at what we talked about in, in the past but like i think we have to get very very small and looking at each issue because we're not in typical times we're going to have to do this thing differently a lot of what reason why Stacey Abrams was so successful is that that I mean she used 10 years of, of networking organizing on the ground those oh, we have groups we have the groups in our communities that care about our communities who we can that we can tap into to, to win these things to reach black men to have an agenda that speaks to black men um but we need to be tapping into investing in it again that's a much smaller conversation then oh my god black men are the republicans i just think we have to pump the brakes on gotta um, change the frame yeah i feel you we're in lockstep on that one for sure cheers we never I think, look, at <laughs> look at god isn't he he is still in the miracle working business come on somebody um i you know Brittany, you kind of asked the question earlier i believe it's what you asked like what happens to trumpism post trump and I think that is the job of the Republican Party. I think it is not our job to bring people in and kumbaya. I do not think it is our job to say, let's all hold hands and forget about the last four years. I think it is the job of the Republican Party to call a thing a thing and to try and do better and to build on the growth that has happened or whatever, you know, just to, to build upon this theme of unity that Joe Biden is trying to um, promote as president. I think it is their job to come to the table. I think as a Democrat, and this is just my personal opinion, we set the table, we invite everyone, we bring the snacks, the food, we cook a full meal, <laughs> and then they don't come and we go, well, we tried. And then we'll go to their house and we'll just bring the food with us. It's like, no, it's time for them to come to our table. You know, it's time for us to stop kowtowing and catering. You know, I'm all for unity. What I want in this country more than anything is unity and harmony and a, are we always gonna have our differences? Yes, but a way that we can function together. But you're telling me 72 million people almost split down the middle. Each candidate almost got 72 million votes are now supposed to just forget everything in the last four years and hold hands. No, it is not our job or our responsibility to bring them to the moral high ground. I am not leading you to water and trying to make you drink. Like you got to find the, the lake for yourself. 
because we've tried and it is very evident that they don't want to come. And so I think that the Democratic Party to be successful needs to focus on the Democratic Party and let the Republicans worry about rooting out Trumpism. You know, I think what you're hitting on, too, is this with the idea of unity, you know, yes, we want unity. But when you ask a people, let's just say black people who have repeatedly over and over been told to bide their time, compromise, put their needs and what they what, what their rights on the back burner. When you ask them to unify. Unity for black people in 2020 should not be regressive. It should be progressive. It should be unity that is rooted in a collective movement of progress for all, right? And anyone that is not for that, they can't be unified with me. That's just, and that's not on me. I'm not the one not being unified. <laughs> so that, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. On that, for sure. It's hard to tell a black man or Democrats in general uh, to shake hands with a group of people that have used the swastika flag, that have uh, raised the Confederate flag and said, like, you know, this is our roots. And so I think to ask, you know, black people to say, like, okay, now it's time to unify with those 72 million people, it's kind of, you know, disrespectful, in my opinion, almost. <laughs> Here's my only pushback. Okay. Well, what? Here, here's my only pushback. Well, I know what's coming. Listen, I'm a journalist, so I'm, I'm always have a little bit of pushback. I'm objective. Okay. How do I word this? How? Right. It's it's unfair, I would say, to <laughs> label all 72 million of those people the same way. Okay. And I would well, say. Why are we were talking about Trumpsters, though? Why are we were talking about the, the yeah. not. Because I, mean, I don't think that every Republican who voted for, for, for Donald Trump is, uh, is a part of his. That's what I'm saying. Uh, I, I think, fine. Every Trump, you know, everybody that voted for Trump is not a part of, you know, like that fringe right, right wing group. However, right. they are, in my opinion, you know, like there's a. Like what Stephanie said, that's their group. Like their group is dealing with that issue. And so to ask me and the, or the Democratic Party to then say, okay, let's try to work with this group now. Like that's not my problem. That's them. They're dealing with something that I, you know, that offends me, you know, they, they are supporting that. Like that's a Republican issue. And I, so to even uh, suggest that should even, you know, my opinion, like say like that is our problem as well. Like, oh, that that if is our not progress together is around moderate issues. Then, 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 you know, that's the. I agree. We that. should be unifying together. What I'm saying is, I guess the better way to put this is like, if the Democrats want to be a party for the working class, like, like, like back in the day, we gotta right? include the swastika people. No, I'm not saying you include them. I'm saying there are people that voted for Trump, <laughs> who literally are just, they're the working class. And I would argue the black people, the Latino people we see peeling toward Trump are part of that working class. And they, the things that appeal to them are entrepreneurship. Things that appeal to them are, you know, issues around the economy, um, self-reliance, traditional conservative type of things, right? 
Now, these are things you can still find within the Democratic Party. The question is, who is going to communicate that? There are people, I believe, you can reach out to if you want to maintain that blue wall and grow it um, and expand the electorate to be a working class party. But if we focus on our party, like I think what Chris was talking about earlier, like we can sustain that blue wall, like the blue wall was, you know, like we built, we rebuilt it, like black people mm-hmm. re, re, rebuilt that. So I don't understand, it can crumble in my again. opinion, like why we then need to say like, now that we've rebuilt the blue wall, we need to go work with the other party to sustain the blue wall. Like, why don't we just embrace our party ourselves? I'm not saying work with the other party. I'm saying you should always be <laughs> consensus building and working to find this, this is what joe biden ran on wait a second this, this is literally what joe biden well wait a minute Brandon, because don't tell me that the democratic party don't tell me the democratic party doesn't talk about entrepreneurship we came up with opportunity zones we're the ones that are trying to protect folks with h1 uh, uh visas in the united states so they can start these businesses don't tell me that the democratic party is not for working people when we're in right that. now defending the health care law I'm in the middle of a damn pandemic, pandemic. I'm what saying I'm saying true. is that the Democratic Party, no, you're conflating, you're conflating a personality cult with conservatism. Those two <laughs> things are not the same thing. And to Stephanie's point, that is Republicans' <laughs> issue to deal with on their side. We have to talk to working class uh, voters. We have to show Americans that we're going to show up for them every single election and, and in between. But that does not mean that we can conflate conservative values with a cult, personality cult around Donald Trump. Those are not I, the same I things. Agree. We're not allowed you to do that. That is hundred percent. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not conflating the two at all. There's people that voted for Donald Trump because they are literally they worship Trump. He has a cult. That's there. That's just the way it is, right? I'm just saying there are people there who can still be engaged. Wow. Can still be brought into the fold of the Democratic Party. No. The Democratic. I- we are the big tent party, but our tent Please. is not so big in which we start allowing people in that will crumble the tent. That we it was big enough to have John Kasich speak at the, at the DNC. Now it's not big. Now it can't be bigger. Look, man, we can't look. Wait a minute. Who, I wait can't. A minute. Who said that? Who said that we didn't? Wait a minute. <laughs> well, who said that we didn't? Wait a minute, Brandon. Because here's this, again, this is, this is my point about conflating. And seriously, the, the Trump kind of personality called Republican mm-hmm. wing of the party with folks who truly have conservative values yeah. and right. And folks who said, okay, John Kasich and, and the McCain family in the spirit of, of the late John McCain said, I am not going to allow anyone of any party of any uh, movement to disrespect the presidency, to disrespect the, our institutions. That's not, the, that's not the same thing. Oh, the tent's so big that you let John Kasich. That's not the same thing. Those aren't the same things. So again, you can't conflate the two. <laughs> Well, I think it shifts to the other conversation of the Democratic Party has to wrestle with their progressive base as well. You could argue that if it wasn't for some of these, you know, farther left politicians like uh, Rashida Tlaib in Michigan and Ilhan Omar in Minnesota, you know, they were integral in getting these states to go blue. The Democratic Party's got to do some soul searching as well with how they move forward and be inclusive to that segment of the party, which is growing. Um, This election, there were a lot of people that kind of, uh, what's the word? Grinned their teeth and bared it. 
to 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 vote for Biden, um, with the hope that Kamala Harris and others could do something more progressive in the future. So I'm interested to see how the Democrats move forward with that, and also in how they communicate the progressive values also share some things in common with what the working class wants. Right. Well, I think, you know, we have to have our own lemon squeeze. In the Democratic Party, there are different in values. I think that's within any party, within any social structure, there's going to be a difference in values and a difference in what the priorities are. And do we have to have our own internal lemon squeeze about that and kumbaya session? 100%. But I think that the Democratic Party needs to be focused on having our kumbaya session and our internal healing before we're worried about anything going on with Trump voters and them. We Definitely need to, agree. Definitely we agree. need to take care of in the House, because if our House is strong, honey, mm -hmm. we're winning up and down ballots. Yes. Once we have our house in order, but we can't worry about our house and the house next door. They got to do mm -hmm. them over there, honey. We can't, we can't be bothered, pressed, stressed, or otherwise concerned because they have made their bed of whatever the GOP looks like now. They have to lay in it. We have things too, as Democrats, that we need to figure out with moderate Democrats. Moderate, now a cuss word in the Democratic Party. You don't want to tell. <laughs> no, seriously. You, you, it's like when people would tell me like, I'm a moderate or in the um, or in the primaries, like I'm voting for Biden. It was like you had to tell somebody in a back alley with code because they were so worried <laughs> that a hundred percent serious yeah. that if you, you were not this progressive, you know, if you are not AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie progressive, you're not a real Democrat anymore. Right. Like we're not liberals anymore. You could be a liberal, but that doesn't mean you're a progressive. Like, we have things that we need to fix. Yeah. And therefore, if we fix that, the Democratic Party will be unstoppable, 100%. And I think that what it, this all reminds me of is JFK. JFK was progressive for his day. Mm -hmm. And he only won the presidency, what people forget, by a little over 100,000 votes. Everybody loves and reveres him, and you would have thought he won by a landslide, but he eked it out with grace and favor and mercy. And so I think that that just shows you when you worry about yours and you fix your house and you make your people's priorities, the people who voted you in, the priority of your administration, mm -hmm. then you can start promoting healing. Then you can start really solidifying the nation. Well, you, you can't be, right. you know. Amen. Pass the plate. Pass the plate. <laughs> Come on, Stephanie, preach. I'm just, but you can't, you know, at this juncture of the country, we do not have the luxury of being worried about the people who didn't vote for us. True. A house divided is the greatest weapon <laughs> that someone can have against you. Well, yeah, you got to get your house in order and get the family. Nobody wins when the family feuds. Isn't that what Jay-Z said in, the, in that <laughs> song? <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like Rock Nation. <laughs> That's what he said. This guy. Listen, I think I think Stephanie makes a point that, and I, the the only thing that I'll say about Stephanie's point that maybe I um again trouble for this sometimes is, look, I think we can make a persuasive case to people who voted for the president, voted for Trump, and I'm not saying Republicans and 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 even people who are kind of falling into this personality cult. Because I do think that when they vote their interests, they'll find that they vote to protect their health care and extend unemployment during a pandemic and all these other yeah. these other pieces. So I do think that there's a persuasive values. 
And so I think that uh, I think that the 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 way that Vice President Elect, I mean, the President Elect has already begun to kind of you're seeing some of these press conferences bring down the temperature a little bit, um, be the thermostat, and just hold on, guys, so, you know, it's gonna be fine. You know, I think that um, is an opportunity for us to make sure that on our message is delivered on its face, our agenda is delivered on its face for what it's about. Um, and, and so I think that that's important and helpful and we should be intentional about it. I, but I do agree that we don't, <laughs> we don't go meddling uh, next door uh, when our laundry ain't done. In a way, I think we can unify as a party, I think, is if we combat, I think, the disinformation that I believe some progressive ideas or policies have across the country. Um, you know, a lot of people are afraid of what they think are socialist uh, ideals. But when, you know, like what you said, if like they want their health care and they want a pandemic uh, stimulus uh, passed, those are things that are, you know, across the board that everybody wants. But I believe the disinformation campaign against it is so strong um, that lends itself to, you know, Hispanic voters or uh, black voters or other, you know, just voters in general, just kind of questioning it like immediately and saying like, oh, well, I don't know if this policy really is for black people. I don't know if they really are for uh, my group or my demographic. I don't know if they have their, my best interest in mind. And so I think that is probably where we need to start, like combat the disinformation so that everybody can get on the same page of what it is that we're for, and then we can unify the party together. And then Jordan, what do you think are some of the hurdles though? Because I think you're gonna, Newsmax is continuing to blow up. I mean, it's, I mean, it is almost taking some of the Fox News fire. I think Trump is gonna have some kind of, I mean, he has, his Twitter is a media platform in its own way, but even a more organized media platform is gonna continue to just, could continue to dominate news cycle. I mean, maybe it goes off and becomes some fringe thing, but I just wonder what you think as a media person, what, what, what is, all right, we're working, we're going into an environment that just seems uncharted in terms of the ability to skew disinformation without being checked. And I don't even know that we're at, at our worst point right now. Yeah, I, that's um. That's not a you know. That's the question that doesn't really. I don't know if I have or anybody has the answer currently. Just because social media is changing, I know people believe that now that Twitter has started to you know notify tweets that are fraudulent. You know they're moving over to Parler and different social media outlets. So mm. I'm not necessarily sure what is the best case to tell people like. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is so bad. Like, I literally don't know. I um. Well, I don't know I think if you, you but I think if, that's yeah. the question, right? Like, we have to navigate. I think if you take, if, if your campaign is, uh, rather than maybe focusing on your ideas, maybe your campaign could take what the, you know, like what the lies are and then flip them. And maybe that may be a way to go forward in, in your marketing strategies or in how, you know, news pundits or political um, um, candidates kind of address or present their issues. Instead of just presenting their issues as is, like this is my idea and this is that, you present like what the opponent is saying about you and then uh, showcasing that your idea is, you know, here's this thing, here's why it matters to you, here's why they're wrong and here's why it makes sense. Um, and that may be a way that we just need to probably campaign for like going forward with the idea that like the other 
party is going to try to put out misinformation. So instead of me maybe just putting out my platform points like this, maybe I need to address that misinformation right off the bat. Again, I don't know the best way to do it, but I do think we should at least be conscious in the fact that maybe everything we are receiving across the board on social media is not going to be, you know, 100%. Like, I don't know if everything on Fox is going to be 100%. I don't know if everything on MSNBC is going to be 100%. I think we just kind of have to operate with the fact that if we're consuming media, um, we need to learn how to fact check ourselves. And with that in mind, if you are, you know, campaigning, know that people are going to fact check you. And so maybe have a fact checking strategy in mind with how you present your ideas. That, that's, you know, that's just me. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Tell that message, right? Mm -hmm. I think that one of the big gaps that Democratic campaigns face is in how they use Facebook. A lot, of, a lot of the misinformation you see is based off of what people are seeing on their Facebook timelines, right? But if they don't like what they're seeing on Facebook, they can just move to another platform, you know? So That's like, true, but we, we have to remember people who are older and people who, you know, Facebook is like, that, that's who uses Facebook, right? Older voters. They're not really as into moving to a parlor, right? They barely know how to, they took, took so long to learn how to use Facebook. They, they, they ain't trying to find something else. They don't, you know, they, they might just be getting into Twitter. So I, I think the key is meeting people where they are. Facebook, sadly, is an app where people live in their own universes. They, what you see on your timeline differs completely than what somebody else on the other side of the country does. And the information you see is different. So Facebook, one, as a company, has to do a better job of flagging stuff. It shouldn't have taken this long, right? And Facebook can do better still. Twitter did a great job flagging Trump's tweets um, and having to change the option where you had to, like, quote, tweet before you retweet with the warning of, like, you know, did you read this? Facebook can do a lot better of a job with that. But Democratic campaigns also need to be putting more dollars into Facebook and reaching out to those people on there because there are some inroads to be made in the messaging. If you're a candidate, you know, J uh, Jim Clyburn, he went on a lot of tirades this week about sloganeering and about how he feels like the sloganeering from the progressive left of defund the police, the Green New Deal, and all that hurts congressional candidates and may have hurt some Senate candidates. Could be true. But also, those campaigns need to hit Facebook and counteract that. Define yourself for yourself. Don't let others define you. So when I look at the future of this and, and, and the, the, this information world we, we're in, I think there's still some ways you can combat it without getting into the mud, without becoming that, right? Well, and it's also about who's going to hold those – it's also about who's holding those – those groups accountable, right? I think sure. on the right, I think we, we, I mean, I think, you know, there are parts, there are po political movements that use some of these um, slogans and conspiracy theories because they're politically beneficial to them. And in many ways, um, you know, we're the only party that rejects some of the sloganeering that is potentially movement building, right? Um, but we just started talking holding mainline Republicans responsible for the QAnon core in their party. 
you know, that's, that's really ridiculous. Democrats are held responsible oftentimes for, um, for, for activist language around defund the police, but you, you can look back that we were, Democrats weren't out saying that. Um, there were people movement building in our communities that were saying it and they wanted us to speak to police reforms. We weren't out saying those things. So I just think it's an interesting kind of, the way it looks on the right in terms of accountability and the way it looks on the left in terms of accountability are very different. There's a lot of like factors of race and class mixed in that. Um, and I think it's gonna, be, it's gonna be tough for us to sort out. I think social media plays a role in being more accountable about what people are allowed to post and whether or not they're allowed to have platforms, um, like period, full stop. But I, but I do, um, I'm always cautious to just say anyway, even though I don't think you're suggesting this, Brandon, that like better messaging on Facebook is not the key, the key right? Like alone, right? I, I know you're not suggesting that, but yeah, I know you're not suggesting that, but I always like to say like, <laughs> for clarity, <laughs> Thank better Facebook clarity. posts ain't gonna do it. Thank you. Chris I'm J, glad that I can. Clarity. The <laughs> CJT, Clarity J Taylor. <laughs> Definitely appreciate it. Any, uh, any last thoughts about the election before we move on to uh, tea time? I think can we just say it's gonna change going yeah. forward. I don't think anybody, any news. Stage. I don't think we're going to look at Quinpiniac the same way. At least I'm not, you know, when they come out with a new poll. Um, and I think the, I know we talked to uh, a poster on, a, on our pod um, before. And like he said, if the polls are wrong this time, there's going to be a reckoning um, going forward. I think forward. the polls are pretty much right this time. They were kind of. Yes, everybody was like, Biden's going to win. And we got that. But we didn't win as many house seats as we thought we were going to win. We did not have an overwhelming, we didn't flip the Senate like we thought we were going to do. Everybody believed that there was going to be like a repudiation against or a rejection against Trump. And that was not necessarily the case. So there are clearly people that are not reporting to pollsters like their intentions um, often. So, and I think that has been a, a detriment to everybody. I think people, the day before the election, they were going to, they, a uh, poll came out that said Biden was going to win, like, Ohio, you know, and yeah. was going to win Florida. And yeah. when, you know, when you're watching the election turns, come like when they came in, and Florida did not obviously go for, for Biden, you know, it became like this big, uh, at least for newscasters, when they were watching the news and reporting, like, it became this big referendum, like, oh, well, we thought this was going to happen, but it may not go this way. So there was a lot of anxiety, at least for me, going into the election night going forward. Um, and so to avoid that, I think going forward, you know, we're probably going to, I don't know how it looks, um, but there will probably be a, a new way that polls are uh, taken and received. And I think there will probably be, you know, less of a trust of, you know, polling data. Yeah, we'll definitely oh, have I think there's some to talk some more about polling. just just I guess less of polling data from uh, the course of when you're watching it from a, a media standpoint because the Biden campaign obviously had their own polling data and they made their decisions based off of polling data and obviously it worked out for them based off of where they were putting their campaign efforts towards. Uh, um, you know, they won Arizona. Um, they had people in Arizona, and I think the last time they won in Arizona was 1996. 
and that was yeah. based off of their polling data that they had that they knew that they could potentially flip that. And, you know, so I think in a, the way that campaigns are probably getting their data may be uh, something that, you know, campaigns probably can continue to do. But going forward, the media organizations that are getting the, the polling, I think, are probably going to, you know, they're probably going to change. So One of the questions I'm asking pollsters right now, Jordan and, and, and Brandon Stephanie, is how do we take um, the tent or measure around what people say they're going to do and what they end up doing eventually in the ballot box? Again, I don't necessarily think that this cycle is a, um, the polls are the only um, piece to look at in terms of the environment not materializing. It is a piece, certainly. Um, but I think it's a unique year where you had um, Trump on the ballot. And I, I just, and, and all that he conjured up in terms of some of the anti, or just some of the racist energy. And I just, I wonder how much of that calculation was missed because folks were dishonest or how much of that and then when it came to like polling modeling or if we're not asked, if the right questions aren't being asked or if there's a group of people in this country who believe more in prejudice ideas than we like to believe or account for. And if that is true, how do we account for it? Because folks probably don't want to tell us. <laughs> and, um, and I don't, I don't think that those groups stopped feeling emboldened because they lost an election. Um, and so I just, I, I think it's much deeper than, um, polling is, 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 is a problem. I just think it's so much deeper because, um, there's a lot there in terms of what was missed and what was missed, frankly, um, was the surge, uh, this kind of personality cult. Yeah. I think what, you know, to that point, if, uh, my, my, my thing is if polling suggested that there was going to be like a surge, like how does that change the discussion leading up to, you know, the election? Um, and one final thing before we, I know we want to go to Brandon C time. I, I, what I hope is that mail-in voting, since there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of uh, steps taken to make mail-in voting easier this time around for due to, um, the coronavirus and a lot of steps uh, made to enhance early voting. And I'm curious to see if when coronavirus ends and people can gather out in public, if those same types of, uh, well, mail-in voting and early voting will be taken advantage of in a case, you know, in a year where people can go out and, you know, in the public and not necessarily worry about a disease. And I'm wondering if we can kind of sustain maybe that uh, turnout with since voting is now easier in some places, will that, you know, like, will that sustain going forward? Will mail-in voting be here to stay is something that... Yeah, because this time around, mail-in voting was, you know, a focal point because yeah. it needed to be. Yeah. Um, but when and it doesn't you, need to be... ways to improve the system, too, where you could make it a lot more streamlined. Yeah. Yes, indeed. All right, y'all. I don't see Stephanie here, but I'd like to jump into... Tea time with Brandon Pope. <laughs> you gonna sing? You know, Jeezy liked to drink 
Jeezy like to smoke. Jeezy like to do some Marvin Hammer with his coke. <laughs> Your pocket's looking brittle. You a rat. Stuart Little. $10,000 outfit. They can tell I'm a rich hitter. Came out my mama like a boss. Got these hoes singing Diana Ross. I'm talking about Young Jeezy. Is this music nowadays? Is this what the kids listen to? I'm talking about Gucci. Somebody mute his mic. I'm talking about legends. Rap legends. Yes, these are rap legends, especially in the South. And they have a long-standing beef, but they are going to squash it with a versus battle. And I am so excited. This is like the Hood Super Bowl. And I am just elated. Okay? Now, the... These two, Jeezy, Gucci, their beef goes way back, okay? From the Icy. Remember So Icy? Ooh, these girls excited. Ooh, you know they like it. I'm so icy. What year was that? that was Remember great, that? Great TV was on the song. You know, a quarter million? Okay. So there was a whole beef over that song and whose album it could be on. And ever since that happened, they had a falling out. GD did a diss trap called Stay Strapped, where he said, <laughs> even his own mama know Roderick Davis, a B word. So, you know, they, they've been beefing for a minute, you know. It's come to blows. They're going to squash it finally. And I'm so excited for this, this epic versus battle. That versus battle is happening, I believe, on November 19th. That is a, yep, November 19th. Thursday, November 19th. Uh, Anyone else here as excited as I am about it? Well, you know, I remember. This ain't really up Chris's alley. Chris is, Chris is more <laughs> of a, you know, he he would be tuned into a Luther Vandross versus uh, Marvin Gaye or something like that, which I would too. But mm-hmm. I've got range, Chris J. <laughs> well, I, I That's a word. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I remember when, uh, you know, back in grade school, where people would wear the the Jeezy Snowman T-shirts. I got suspended for wearing one of those. Oh, really? And like, I, I knew a couple of people, like a whole bunch of people who used to wear those. And then they were, you know, and then people would randomly yell out "Burr," like when that became a thing. Like people just mm-hmm. go the hallways and say "Burr." Yes. And so this is kind of you know nostalgic, but. Again, one thing I like about the Versus platform is that it, you know, it has reminded me, I guess, of, you know, good music or good fun times that I had. And so I do remember when So Icy came out and how that was like an impact in my high school years. What a song. (laughs) So going forward, you know, I'm hoping that the Versus platform, um, Cause I, you know how popular rap beef used to be. And so I'm wondering, you know, just similar to how like two rappers that had beef can like come together on this platform and in a way they can have a battle. And so I'm wondering, you know, not mm-hmm. this isn't like a rap battle um, or battle rap, but I'm wondering if like in the future, and this is maybe, you know, stretching a little bit, but like if there are future disputes with like other artists, you know, maybe this could be a, uh, a platform, you know, that can kind of help squash or you know help the two people come together and yeah you know i think we've already seen that with monica and brandy a little yeah bit. yeah a little and bit. so you know hopefully make uh i don't know maybe make the industry a little bit safer a lot of young hip-hop artists and black men i've, I've been 
uh, shot lately. And a lot yeah. of them are, you know, losing their lives prematurely. Um, and I don't know if it's, um, you know, industry relations that are getting them involved or if they're like beefing with other music artists or what it is that they're, you know, dealing with. Um, but I think this is a good, you know, I think this is a good outlet to potentially do more positive in uh, situations that have, you know, usually turned out uh, pretty, or can turn out pretty uh, poorly yeah. in some cases. Well, you know me, I'm all for rap positivity. I am uh, <laughs> probably the biggest advocate for rap positivity. 50 Cent I didn't know that your name was next to rap positivity. I had no idea. It, it is in there, Chris J. Taylor. Check it out. I am hmm. one of the biggest advocates for positivity and rap music, squashing the beefs. I have been known to squash a beef or two. Um, hmm. I've been, so, Where is Stephanie? I know she has some. So in a sense, I am a trailblazer in this regard. And I will be watching this versus keenly with my trailblazer eyes. I'm gonna mute Brandon's tweets on Thursday night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just letting Brandon be great. Brandon, if that is what the Lord has called you to, to be an ambassador Thank for you. rap positivity, I just hope that you just move forward in your purpose. Thank you, Stephanie. See, Chris and Jordan need to get with the program and support me in my dreams. But they choose to they choose to try to be divisive, divisive, however you say it. That's what they choose. Mm. I choose the side of uniting the icy man and the snowman. Burr. I picked Jesus. Brandon trying Brandon's trying to uh, unite Gucci and whomever. You trying to unite the Trumpsters and, and, I, and the Democrats? Child. I am the man of unity. Okay, I want that to be my brand, so that when I run for office, everyone can say, "Well, you know, Brandon was always about bringing people together." He's like Van Jones and Don King mixed in one. <laughs> <laughs> wow! 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 I can't. <laughs> We, we love you just the same. Van oh Jones my God! Um, shout, out, shout out to Van Jones. Did, uh, did and a little extra tea time segment. This will really get under Jordan's skin. University of Michigan football. I know Michigan flipped blue, but their fans are going through it. it. Their team is not rewarding them. Uh, no. You have the you have a Michigan State Spartans team that is terrible. The Michigan Wolverines team that is terrible. However, amid calls to fire Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh, I say, no, let him play. I say, let him stay the coach. Why? Because historically, Jim Harbaugh is actually one of the most successful coaches in the history of Michigan football. Yes, you heard that right. He is. I don't have the stats on me right now. I, I, I need to pull them up. But Jim Harbaugh has done very well. He revived the Michigan program that was in the dumps. And the people there are just really ungrateful. When's the last time Michigan was relevant? Well, 1989, 1991. I mean, I, I was born in 1991. Michigan has not ever been relevant in this era, in the modern era. And so their fans need to get a grasp of reality. You're a 10-win team at best. You're lucky to get that. 
You're never going to be on the caliber of Ohio State or Alabama or Clemson or any of these elite programs. It's fine. Accept what you are. You're a great brand, elite brand. The marketing genius, it's, it's a marketing hustle, what Michigan has done to people. Same with Notre Dame. Y'all have marketed yourself really well. But Michigan overall is an average program, and that's fine. That's okay. I want everybody to, to know that um, the man who said he was trying to unify people uh, likes to vilify, uh, you know, great uh, programs that are uh, trying their best. And I'm not going to stoop as low as you went. I'm going to be like Michelle Obama. I'm going to go high. I'm not going <laughs> to indulge in this conversation. There's no place to stoop in, with me. In, There's no in, place uh, to stoop. In the spirit of unity, I think we should talk about uh, the new HBO special that Will, uh, Will Smith is doing with the Fresh Prince reunion. Uh, where, you know, for the, I think for the first time, at least I can remember, both Aunt Vivs are going to be in the same place at the same time. That's special. Um, That's special. Dark skin Aunt Viv, light skin Aunt Viv together. That mm -hmm. is what we need in 2020. We need to unify our, our people, you know? Colorism is real, and I think it's important that we have a great... I can't wait for the colorism, um, you know, think pieces that are going to come up from... Uh, this Fresh Prince reunion. It's going to be- a Now, are you behind this Unity project or is this just? Uh, I have been a, a big proponent, not an advocate, not a not a major player, but I've been towards the front of the of the calls for unity amongst the, the different shades because we're all different shades of the same color. Well, that's a good you didn't broker the um, You didn't uh, broker the Aunt Viv uh, reunion. I just wanted to be clear I, I may have had something to do with it. It's gonna be a busy week for you then, between. We we in the dark skin delegation may have had a meeting oh, with the light skin delegation and said, you know what would really bring our people together? If dark skin on Viv could be brought back into the fold. And I think that's that meeting happened years ago, but it's finally coming to fruition. So I'm not gonna give myself credit here, but I'm gonna give myself a little bit. Was this the same meeting or is this before or after the meeting when all the Democrats came together and decided to steal the election? You know, I know it's probably been a, a busy, busy week for meetings and such. But decided to steal I, the presidential election, but not the Senate and House races. Right, right, right. No, no, we, we, we figured we'd take one election at a time. I just didn't know where in your schedule this fit all of the meetings. It was that one. And then we said, you know, the person we want to steal the election with of all the candidates is Joe Biden. We were very strategic <laughs> and we said don't worry about the senate and the house uh, now we just we were just gonna focus our obstruction on <laughs> winning the presidency with the most boring candidate possible and that's what we did and i think we <laughs> uh, uh don't don't we will not tolerate joe slander today no the 46th president of the united <laughs> states deserves nothing in the great state of michigan You're right. he's well, not the most boring he's, he's not the most boring he actually is a very appealing candidate. He's a very emotional, heartfelt man. Um, he's got a great story. Um, he cares about our servicemen. He's has, he's empathetic. Most boring candidate would have been Amy Klo Amy Klobuchar. Wow. So, you know what? I'm not gonna allow you to disrespect the great senator from the state of Minnesota, Miss uh, uh, Senator Klobuchar. And I'll also say, Brenda, you know, you're the same person that just told me to go um, hug Trump sycophants and and. Um, Proud boys. So, you know, let's talk I about your, your record on <laughs> <laughs> exactly what you did. And so I, I continue to remind the uh, reporting class um, 
of their um, both sides, system, if you will. Mm. Uh, 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 it, it relates as well to this, to this, this um, I'm just unity objective. tour that you seem to be on in Hollywood. I'm just objective. That's all, you know, and uh, that's all. Well, objectively, the HBO reunion will be on uh, the 19th. <laughs> so if you want to tune in, uh, I think you know. I think it'll be something good if you have nothing to do on the 19th. So Great. they're gonna think HBO paid us to say that. They gonna think HBO paid us to say that. HBO ain't give us no money. They can now. We invite an HBO Max partnership. <laughs> All right, y'all. That was another edition of Young, Black, and Political. Follow us on social media, YMGBLK Political on Instagram. We're now on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. Get at us, okay? Hit us up. And uh, we got a lot more to talk about as we go through the transition and go through uh, this runoff election and, and so much more in this, uh, in this uh, political world. But never forget the power of the black vote. I think this election is a testament to that. The black vote has power. And uh, we're so glad that you're able to, to be a part of this process and talk about it. And we're going to continue to use our voices to uplift, encourage, and inspire throughout. So for Jordan, for Stephanie, for Chris, I'm Brandon Pope. Uh, stay woke. Stay black. Thank you for voting. <laughs>